This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, thankfully, we got a chance to, to hang out a little bit uh, last week. It was good to see you in Chicago. We were up there for uh, the 4th of July and got to hang out with some good friends. And you didn't get a chance to run from me this time. I got a hold of you and uh, <laughs> it made you hang out with me. It was a, a joy. I love hanging out. You know, life being what it is, is not always possible, but I love to do it. We, we made it happen and, as always, kind of nerded out on theology and politics. It was a, it was a really good conversation uh, with some, some other really good friends. So it was good to see you. Now, before we get into this episode or, you know, the stuff that we usually talk about, I want to point something out that was just a real disappointment to me and, and just see what your thoughts were. On this show, we have kind of critiqued and criticized congressional hearings. But I have a feeling that congressional hearings have reached like an all-time low. This week, there were two very important congressional hearings. One was about COVID and the origins. You know, as you know, a group of scientists had come out and basically tried to dispel the idea that it was a lab leak. They went before Congress and really needed to get called out for why their opinions changed within days and all this stuff. And all we got was partisanship. We got Republicans trying to score points about China. We got Democrats completely ignoring, you know, how the the facts have changed in regard to the lab leak. And with something so important, it just showed me it's, you know, it it was just sad. And then we had Chris Ray, who's the former director of the FBI. There was a congressional hearing with him and it was the same thing. And for most for the most part, folks trying to uh, score points, trying to go viral instead of getting to the heart of certain issues. And I'm just disappointed in many of our representatives to take issues like COVID and make it partisan, which has been going on for. I mean, that's nothing new. Right, Chris. But to take those issues and make them more partisan than about getting to the facts. They're doing the American people a disservice. And so all the, the representatives who were in those particular hearings, shame on you for the ones who, who who thought it was more important to be partisan than actually do what you're supposed to do and get to the bottom of, of what's been going on. Chris, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. We, we will probably have to take it up more in a different podcast, but if you want to get really down just turn on some C-SPAN coverage of the United States Congress any day. So many of the issues, I think, in our government and policymaking just come back to a completely dysfunctional Congress. Too many money interests, too many folks who have been there way too long don't really necessarily understand many of the things that are happening in the society. 
you know, people who are disconnected because they are disproportionately wealthier than the average person. And the way our democracy is supposed to work is that the heart and the, the moral center of our government is supposed to be in the House of Congress and House of Representatives. And it's so far from that. I think in terms of, of uh, government, fixing Congress should be like one of the top, top priorities. Yeah. Uh, Those hearings are a circus with a bunch of very unserious people who have a serious job to do, but happen to find ways to not be serious about it or just have agendas that have nothing to do with the American people. Again, it's not everybody, but it is too many of the partisans in those. Uh, and that, never, I mean, yeah. there's so much we can say. We can yeah, do a we, whole show. We got to do a thing about it. We got to do a thing about it because I mean, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go for, for now. We will probably get back to it, but it, it's disappointing. And so if you want to, if you have a congressperson who's was in one of those hearings, you might want to write them a letter and tell them to get their act together. There's yeah. too much going on. That Two-word letter. Do better. Do better. As you guys know, uh, we got a lot of content out there that y'all still need to see. So if you have not seen the How I Got Over docuseries that the Ann campaign did about the role of the authority of scripture in the black church, whether it's the establishment of the black church, the music, the social action, you need to watch that now. There is a terrible, vicious lie out there that somehow orthodoxy and the authority of scripture are separated from the black church. We see that being said on the left. We see that being said on the right. It is a complete lie. And so we did our best to be intellectually honest, historical, to give you what really, you know, what was really going on in the black church and in the minds of those believers who established it. So check that out. You can also check out our a whole life project video on Instagram or YouTube. Many people have found that very helpful in, in kind of correcting the narrative. As always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate that shout out because there's not a lot of larger foundations that would support the AND campaign. We are always respectful. We are always civil, but we talk about tough issues that a lot of folks would not want to touch. And we appreciate them just being so committed to pluralism that they would hear us out. Uh, we appreciate that. But we also appreciate the folks that give to us on patreon.com slash church politics. Those people who, who do give on Patreon, they get premium episodes. But bigger than that is they help this podcast continue to go move forward. They help this movement continue to move forward. And we greatly appreciate you no matter how much you give. We thank you. But it's time to get into it. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, don't we, Chris? So grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Well, Chris, the first thing that I wanted to talk about comes from a columnist who I really have a lot of respect for. Christina Imba is a writer for The Washington Post. She wrote a book entitled Rethinking Sex, where she challenges modern America's anything goes sexual ethic from the left. And shows how in some ways it's more harmful to women than it is liberating to women. While Emma's probably more progressive than I am, Chris, I do appreciate her work because right now in our public discourse, in my opinion, we have a bunch of people who are saying the same progressive or conservative thing in different ways. So you have all these different thinkers who are basing their commentary on the same conclusions, in many cases, not really critically thinking about what they're saying at all. Imba's a little different than that. I think she's more thoughtful and I think she's less tied to ideological conclusions. 
which is why her work is actually more helpful than most. And I think she really is not afraid to challenge the paradigm, even on her side, challenge the the orthodoxy on the progressive end of things. She, I mean, she critiques both sides. And so I really appreciate that. She wrote an article, in the, again, in the Washington Post entitled, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Now, this isn't a short article. I mean, she spent some time, did some real investigation and thought into this. And I would uh, recommend that you read it. But I want to I start the conversation with some of the stuff that she said, Chris. She starts off by saying, worrying about the state of men is an American tradition. But today's problems are real and well-documented. De-industrialization, automation, free trade, and peacetime have shifted the labor market dramatically and not in men's favor. The need for physical labor has declined while soft skills and academic credentials are increasingly rewarded. Growing numbers of working age men have detached from the labor market with the biggest drop in employment among men ages 25 to 34. Mm. For those in a job, wages have stagnated everywhere except the top. We've talked about that and we'll continue to talk about that in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, women are surging ahead in school and in the workplace, putting a further dent in the provider model that has long been ingrained in our conception of masculinity. Men now receive 74 bachelor's degrees for every 100 awarded to women. And men account for more than 70 percent of the decline in college enrollment overall. Seventy percent. Wow. And while the past 50 years have been revolutionary for women, the feminist movement championed their power and an entire academic discipline emerged to theorize about gender and excavate women's history. There hasn't been a corresponding conversation about the role men should play in a changing world. At the same time, the increasing visibility of, of the LGBTQ plus movement has made the gender dynamic seem less stable and less defined. Interesting point. Now, she talks about how because, you know, men are kind of lost and having all these trouble, you have people emerge like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate. Now, I say those names together, but I don't think they're equivalent. Right. I, I have serious disagreements with, with both, but I don't think Jordan Peterson is quite where Andrew Tate is when it comes to toxicity. Uh, it may be one way to put it, which we'll talk about that word a little further. But she said she noticed, you know, she looked at what these two guys do and a couple other people. And she said there's a few things that, that really stuck out that were noticeable about how they approach these men who are struggling. She said, number one, what you see in how they approach them, Chris, is empathy. For all Peterson's barking, she says he cle- he's clearly on men's side. Their struggles and confusions are validated in how he talks to them. Number two, they've given a clear script. There's point-by-point advice. If young men are looking for direction, these influencers give them a clear script to follow. Peterson often tells men to clean their rooms. Something very simple, but actually does can have an impact on how you are feeling at the moment and, and, and how you, you know go about your day. Then next, she says, they are particular and aspirational. They find ways to celebrate aspects of the male experience. And Chris, that's something that a lot of men just aren't getting elsewhere. And that's why these folks who may be on the extreme are gaining an audience. Now, she goes on to say that social identity theory says that people inherently protect their identities. And when their identities are maligned in public, the natural response is to stand up for what 
they see as fundamental to their being. And here's an example. Here's a couple of examples of some of those attacks that men, men have been under. In 2018, the American Psychological Association released its guideline for psychological practice with boys and men, which it described in a news release as declaring that traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression is on the whole harmful. The guideline suggests that there is a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population including anti-femininity, achievement, the issue of appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence, and that these standards are damaging to mental and physical health. The inter- we'll get to it, Chris, but the interesting thing about that is some things don't seem that bad, but they're placed with things that are obviously bad. It goes on to say the word masculinity seemed to rarely appear without the descriptor toxic accompanying it. And then they, you know, masculinity had been blamed for everything from rape culture to climate change, right? So there's articles where masculinity is blamed for climate change. In 2014, President Barack Obama announced the My Brother's Keeper Initiative, a $200 million program meant to improve the lives of at-risk boys and men of color. The pushback came immediately. More than a thousand women signed an open letter criticizing the program for not including girls. Chris, I think we've talked about the fact that how men are suffering. I mean, when you look at deaths of despair and all these other categories, you look at education, you know, boys and men are in a rough place. And my observation has been I'm not an expert on this, but my observation has been, as is noted in the article, that so much of what is masculine and natural to men has been called negative. And to be more feminine, uh, to be less masculine, to react less like a, a man might react to certain things is the good way to respond. I'll never forget, Chris, and I'm about to hand it to you in a second. I'll never forget I was listening to an episode of The Argument. It was a New York Times podcast. And this is still when Michelle Goldberg and Ross Douthat were on it. And they were talking about masculinity. Michelle Goldberg is, is pro- very progressive. Ross Douthat is the conservative. And they were talking about, again, masculinity. And she made a comment like, well, why can't every man just be like Chris Hayes from M- MSNBC? Now, if a man is like Chris Hayes, I don't have a problem with that. But she really couldn't understand why every man, man couldn't just act like that. And it made me kind of understand and see the divide that we have when it comes to ideology and what it means to to be masculine. But 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 Chris, I just want to get your thoughts on the article and some of the issues that Emba brings up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly you can tell there's a, a very well thought out argument that is made in the article. And I appreciate a lot about the article. One, just its existence and the willingness to take on this issue in the Washington Post uh, to have somebody who is more on the left dealing with the issue from a perspective a little bit more than, you know, why can't everybody be Chris Hayes? I think all of that is is really, really valuable. You know, I, I, I think that there is something good, a beginning of a conversation to look at Jordan Peterson and that whole crowd and, and at least acknowledge that there is something inviting to men about what they're experiencing in those spaces. She also talks a lot about the the so-called manosphere, 
on the internet and, and, and all that stuff. You know, and I, I know friends and have people in, even in the church who do all the like online, you know, the fitness stuff and, you know, all, all those things. And I'm, I'm much less close to those environments personally, but I, I do think that there's something really, really important that we have to wrestle with when it comes to masculinity and our culture. And from the church perspective, I think we have to look at it from a biblical perspective, right? Like there are certainly things that we can learn about manhood and womanhood. There's something that we can learn about manhood and womanhood from from the scriptures, and we need to be trying to learn that. But even before we get to the scriptures, I don't know where we lost the ability to give some some adherence, some sway, place some value on the observable universe, right? Like the the observable physical differences between biological men and biological women don't necessarily have to be the end of the conversation, but they should certainly, they certainly, they strongly suggest that there are meaningful distinctions between, between the two and meaningful commonalities within each gender. Right. If you can begin with that conversation, which should, in my view, and maybe I'm just, you know, unenlightened, but it seems like those observable realities should allow us to enter into the more kind of esoteric conversation, at least with the assumption that there will probably be some meaningful distinctions here between these two types of created humans. But Chris. What you're asking us to do is admit the obvious at the expense of an ideological conclusion. Why would we? Why? Why in the world would we ever do that? And and that's that is the trouble that we are in because some of these things that are observable and obvious are disallowed from polite society and public discourse. And I think. I have an appreciation for what Ember does in this article because it, it begins to move the conversation uh, in the right way. I think that there is also, though, a need, and, and I'm not saying that this should be the Ember article because I don't think that she would be the person to play this role, but I think there is a need in the discourse for a little bit of what the community organizer and me would call agitation around these, these basic observable and at least in my view, very obvious facts of distinction. And again, I, I don't, because I have a great appreciation for the social sciences and for psychological investigation, all those types of things. This does not have to be the end of the conversation, but these obvious observable realities cannot be disallowed from the conversation. Otherwise, you don't have a full and robust conversation. It becomes and the emperor has no closed conversation, right? Yeah. We cannot deny the obvious because somehow we got so sophisticated and intellectual that we we see past it, right? Yeah. That's that's not where we want to go. But one thing I, I agree with you on, and I agree with most of what you said, but one thing I really agree on is how Imba kind of artfully undermines what the left is saying on gender. And she does so so very artfully. Listen to what she's saying. She says, so while noting that biology isn't itself destiny, she does say that. Imba says this, certain features are scaffolded by biology, right? Certain, some of our, our features as men and women are scaffolded by biology. All are associated with, test. so she's talking about men. She says, all of these things are associated with testosterone, the male sex hormone. 
Despite a push by some advocates to make everything from bathrooms to birthing uh, gender neutral, most people don't actually want a completely androgynous society. She does it very artfully, but that destroys so much of the gender argument that you see on the left. And so while she's on the left, she very much is challenging to say, yeah, even though you want to do all this stuff, most people don't want a genderless society. It doesn't make sense. She goes on to say, and while progressives have embraced the rise of single parent and female led homes, or at least assume them to be inevitable as a, as a as a new status quo, it's still clear that male role models help boys especially to thrive. If you take both of those statements to their logical conclusion, you don't have much left of the far left kind of gender ideology. Right. Because then you have to recognize these distinctions. Most people recognize these distinctions. And if you really recognize them, then where, where does that where does that really leave us? I think that's something to think about. The other thing I would mention in this is the church also hasn't done very not maybe for the same reasons. The church hasn't always done well when it comes to men either. And especially in the black community, you saw that with even the nation of Islam, who was taking men out of prison hardcore guy and and giving them kind of a strong identity not one that we would completely agree with but it was doing that in a way where a lot of men who said I don't I don't want to go to church did find something in what the the nation of Islam was giving the church can do better in what we said before the empathy the the actually giving a clear script right there's something there that the church needs to find and unfortunately anybody who's focused on masculinity within the church it seems has gone too far. So we have these stories of these churches and these influencers who blew up, but that doesn't mean they weren't on to something. That doesn't mean that they didn't see something in young men that needed to be addressed. They just overcorrected and addressed it wrongly. The last thing I would say is part of this story is about how dismissive we are of certain groups. If our narrative is that women are are always the ones that are getting treated a certain way, and we know throughout history that's been true, right? Um, so we're not discounting that. But if if our narrative is so stuck on that that we can't realize what other people are going through, we end up in a bad situation. And what I want to tell people is, whether somebody's a man, woman, conservative, black, white, or whatever, you need to have empathy for them as a Christian. You have to love and hear them out as a Christian, you can't let narratives get in the way of you seeing the pain of other people. And I've been in too many conversations where people will completely ignore the pain of a group that they see as a colonizer. Or what That means that they, you know, I don't have to pay attention to their pain. That is not Christian. And I think that's part of the problem that we're having with some of these lost men. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think that the, the last thing I want to say about Emba's article that I, I do appreciate is the the thrust of the article is very helpful because it's basically saying there is this old, if you will, view of masculinity that certainly had some negative aspects to it that probably should not continue to be pervasive and dominant in the society. But the vision that we have received from the progressive left which has driven the the impetus for change, right? But that vision is not going to carry us into a healthy future. And so we need to start to reimagine what this is going to be because it's not, it can't be what it used to be, but it can't be this vision that we're getting from the progressive left. 
And so we need a new vision. And I think there's a great opportunity here for real, genuine biblical masculinity to come to the fore, because it can begin to provide some of the things that, that you talked about, that Ember talks about, the the detailed scripts, the real framework that can be articulated, and figuring out how we can get from dominance to a masculine kind of responsibility, from competitiveness to real discipline, from aggression to protection, from emotional intolerance to moral courage, right? Like these are things that we can start to rebuild this vision of manhood that's deeply rooted in the scriptures, that's very healthy for the society, that has its own distinct existence within a gender conversation, um, but but maybe does leave behind some of those things. It, it's pretty urgent. I mean, every parent is dealing with this as we raise our sons. Yes. And I, I do see how sometimes school is more conducive to girls yeah. and how they interact right now. I mean, that's an issue we have to deal with. So I'm always thinking of ways, you know, I, t- I talk to my sons about being gentlemen, which doesn't mean that, you know, which takes the toxicity out of it. It still means, you know, we talk about being a protector instead of a predator. We talk about, you know, how does one go about being respected and how do you earn respect? Because she talks about this is earned. And I think to a certain extent it is earned. But to your point also, how do we get rid of some of the things that weren't necessarily part of manhood? You can't cry. You can't. You know, so for my son to say, look, if you're hurt or sad, you can cry. That doesn't mean you just cry over little stuff just because. Right. To get out of it or for somebody to feel sorry for you. But you can do that. So it is trying kind of trying to redefine what masculinity is in view of where it's going wrong today, but also in correction of, of what we had seen before. And it's not easy, uh, but I think it's worth worth pushing for. And the other thing that I say is being strong isn't bad. I think we have such a privileged society that we for somehow think that our boys will never have to fight, will never have to do anything. And that that strength is just a negative thing that doesn't have any practical use in mm-hmm. a society. You don't know where the society is going. Being tough within a certain within certain limits is not bad. It's not bad. It's about how it's used and how it's articulated. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, the that even that that basic physical strength. I've been talking to to my boys about this. Like that physical strength has its uses. Like, and it, and it has applications beyond just sports. You know, I I think that it has a lot of applications. And I also think, and we'll have to do a, a different thing on this. Some of this is removing this conversation from the kind of intellectual elite, because there are a lot of people. One of the things that really it it stuck out to me in this article and it it rubs me every time I hear it when we talk about like, oh, well, you know, we we lost the industrial base and stuff like we say things like that, like it's just a foregone conclusion. We don't need we can't fix it. We don't need to worry about it. And it speaks as if they're not like still a whole, whole, whole lot of people who live more in a physical world than this kind of like world of ideas and computers, right? Like, and we saw it, it came to the fore in COVID. There are still people who have to go to Amazon and lift boxes. It feels like you just type what you want into your computer. If you're in this kind of like the the, the group of people who exist in this world of ideas, you feel like you just type what you want into your computer and it magically comes to your house. There are a whole lot of people who have to go to a warehouse, pick up a box, you know, put it on a truck. And so like the physical world still exists. And the majority of people still live in it. And that is where these physical differences have real genuine application. And I think some of that just gets lost because most of the people having these conversations don't really live in that world. That's real. 
This is one of the places when it comes to masculinity, along with child rearing in general, that I think the elite and the aspiring elite, right, who just take on those values because they want to be like them, are getting it seriously wrong. And I would ask you in the elite or the aspiring elite to question how you view that stuff, to question whether your son wanting to run around and be physical and be aggressive is always a bad thing. Yes, they need to be disciplined, right? But all that stuff isn't necessarily bad. We we This was a long segment, but I think it was worth it. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, those who've been listening to me for a while on this show know that I'm not a pacifist. I do think that there are justifications for going to war from a biblical perspective. And we've gone deep into just war theory and all that stuff. So you guys can look back on my thoughts on that. But I'll be honest with you, Chris, I've become much more skeptical about the wars that we enter into and the motivations behind them recently. Now, I'm not running a campaign at this point to defund the Pentagon, but I am much more skeptical of how the money is used that they receive, especially as we talked about before, when they think it's okay not to be able to account for all the billions of dollars they receive. I'm also highly skeptical about the amount of money we've given Ukraine and how they're using it. My understanding is to date, Chris, that they have received from the U.S. about $75 billion. That's a lot of money. A lot of things could be done with that money. And I think sometimes we feel like because it's gone to, you know, the military that, you know, that it has to be that amount and we can't really critique it. That's how a lot of people in the establishment are handling this. And I'm I'm getting further away from the establishment and how I 
assess these things. Now, I'm not one of those people that thinks you don't need a strong military, but there seems to be some excesses here and some sloppiness here. Now, recently, and I'm sure you heard about this, Chris, Biden said that the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. This is what he told CNN. He said this is a war relating to munitions and they're running out of that ammunition. And here's the thing. He said this next. And we're running low on it. So you mean to tell me that we've given them seventy five billion dollars and they're running out of ammunition? And then you're going to tell me that we're giving away all this money and we're low on ammunition. Now, I guess our response to to that should be, oh, well, we just got to give more money. I mean, I guess that, you know, I guess it's it's a necessity now. We just got to give more and more money. I'm questioning that point of view right now. Last week and then here comes this last week, Biden decided to provide Ukrainian troops with cluster bombs. Cluster bombs have been banned in 120 nations. They've been banned in 120 nations for putting civilians at too great a risk. Now, I'll try to kind of explain what a cluster bomb is. From what I understand, a cluster bomb can be, it's a big bomb. They can be dropped from aircraft or even fired from the ground. And when they're fired, they disperse into little bomblets that are like grenades. Right. So you have this big bomb. It's you know, it's it, it goes out. It becomes all these smaller grenades in midair. Now, here's the problem. About 10 to 40 percent of these bomblets don't detonate when they hit the ground. And this is according to the Red Cross. The unexploded devices can lie undetected for years and then kill civilians who come into contact with them years later. I've heard that up to about a third of the people who are killed by cluster bombs are civilians. And the numbers on this are everywhere, but it seems like a pretty major risk to me. Now, I have a couple questions, Chris, and maybe you can answer these for me and and I'll feel better afterwards. We'll have to see. Number one, I thought that the U.S. wasn't really getting into this war. I thought we were just going to do a little bit. We're going to, you know, make sure we didn't cross any red lines and that we weren't really in the middle of this war. From what I can tell, we're knee deep in this. I mean, from what I can tell, you know, we are treating this like it is our interest is the same as every, you know, as as the Ukrainians. And, And look, we've already said that this is a complicated back and forth. What Russia did was wrong. But the U.S. at the beginning of this conversation said they were not getting this deep into the war. And after Iraq and after all the things that happened in Afghanistan, we don't have the credibility among our own people to be playing around like this. Next thing, many consider cluster bombs, the use of cluster bombs to be a war crime. In fact, Jen Psaki who was Biden's former press secretary, once said that Russia's use of cluster bombs was a potential war crime. Why are we even considering this? And I want to give a shout out to the Democrats and Republicans who looked at Biden and said, absolutely not. We should not be engaged in this whatsoever. So I do want to point that out. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here again, Chris. As far as I remember, the Bible continually talks about how God hates the spilling of innocent blood. 
And it sounds like our carelessness when it comes to these cluster bombs might have us crossing the line, a line that does not have to be crossed. Chris, give me your point of view. And if you can answer my questions, I would appreciate it. Make me feel better. Give me your, your thoughts on this whole cluster bomb back and forth and just where we are when it comes to Ukraine in general. Yeah, I mean, I would first probably say it's important to note that I am also not a pacifist. I'm I'm actually quite pro Western world order and look with great disdain on uh, Russia's invasion of the nation of Ukraine. I'm probably pretty in favor of the United States and other Western powers coming in some form to the aid of the nation of Ukraine. But two things become really immediately clear in this cluster bomb conversation. Number one is that we are crossing what I think is a very significant moral line because you're talking about a style of munitions that the whole world agrees. Even the United States, we didn't join the accord banning cluster bombs But as you already referenced, even this current presidential administration has said that if Russia were to use these same munitions, it should be considered a a war crime. And so it would be hard. You know, I did my little high school debate, Justin, you're an attorney. And I think it's it's really difficult to, to make an argument why Russia using this munition is a war crime and us using it is not. Or us, you know, equipping Ukraine to use it and Ukraine using it is not a war crime. The reason it's bad is because of the civilian casualties and not even just civilian casualties in wartime. You're talking about civilian casualties for decades beyond the time of the war. And so that moral question is one that is obvious. Like this is obviously morally wrong. And then it moves to a second question, which is with this being so obviously morally wrong, why is this administration stepping forward and still doing it? And the the general that you referenced, I think, said the quiet part out loud, which is that the reason that we are doing it is because we're actually running low on the kinds of munitions that you need to fight a uh, you know in modern warfare. And as pro Western order as I am, I'm not naive to think that the that this current Western order will persist for all eternity, or even that the Western order that we all learned about in high school and college actually exists even today, right? Like there's certainly uh, more of an idea if, 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 if monopolarity is not gone forever, certainly an idea that is very destabilized. And so when you have, you know, kind of cold war already existent and kind of like uh, with with China and in, in that part of the world, you have unsettled things in, in the Middle East. I mean, we're out of the, Iran deal. And like, there, there are a lot of things where military conflict, while none of us root for it, part of the reason we give so much money to the Pentagon, even though they can't pass you know, their own audit, is, is this idea of military preparedness. And you can be as pro-Western order, as pro-Ukraine as you want to be, you have to give some consideration for America's military preparedness. And if you know, our support of, of, of war in Ukraine uh, has so hampered our own military preparedness that we're ready to 
throw cluster munitions back into the conversation of like warfare and, and, and modern war, we should really, as a citizenry, be stepping back and saying, somebody needs to give us for real an assessment of our own military preparedness in a way that members of Congress and concerned citizens can really understand. And it's just, just the fact that we're considering cluster bombs, the fact that our president can say in a war we're not in, somehow now we're low on ammunition. That is terrible. That's just bad strategy, bad planning. You know, I'm like, that's just not now that's all relative. Right. So who knows exactly what that means? And he might have felt like he had to say that to justify. Say, who knows? Right. And one of the reasons I, I used to give a lot more, I used to give more benefit of the doubt to the military, right? I used to say, hey, they have information I don't have, which is still somewhat true. But because of the lies that have been told, because of how we have gone about some of this, I know there are conflicts we need to engage in, but we just haven't been honest. And so when the president talks about they're they're low on munitions and we're low as well, that just doesn't, you know, um, inspire much confidence that, that we're really serious about what we're doing. And the pretense of this, I just think is is wrong. I, I, you know, we're deeper in this than we said we were going to be. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean we don't care about Ukrainian people. But I can name some other places that we care about, too, that are going that people are going through a lot yeah. as well. Right. We don't you know, we make we make the decision of where we go. But I like I said, I just don't have a, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. I don't have a lot of confidence in how we're approaching this, and especially when it comes to the dollars that we've we've given out. And I, I just think there needs to be some coming clean. Obviously, the military can't come out and, you know, put all of our military secrets out there in the world. But a basic assessment of military preparedness is not something that is that it's uncommon either in history or in the world for a government to make known to members of Congress and to concerned citizens the state of military preparedness, because however you slice this, either this hasn't degraded our military preparedness and we're just using cluster munitions for fun, which is insane, uh, or it really has. And we are using cluster munitions out of necessity. And either way, it just says to me, like, we need a, we need some openness and accountability. But it also says we're too deep. Like if we're so deep, that we've got to use that as an alternative. That means, bro, you're basically in the like you're in this. Yeah, and 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 you should be trying to end it. I mean, I th- I think the fact that we're in it before you exactly, before you use bombs, you should try to end it or say we can't do anything else, bro. Yeah, go holler at Germany. Go holler at some. We can't do anymore. Yeah, but that's not our answer, right? The answer is we have endless, and we'll just come up and keep getting more money to do what we got to do. Yeah, and I I think ending this conflict is the is, it should be the the number one priority. When, when you start using cluster munitions, it, it's just so obvious that it's gotten out of hand. And, and it's, it's beyond where anybody really wants to be. Well, we would assume anybody wants to be. Right. Yeah, let me say anybody. You know, most people of goodwill do not want to be in a place where there's endless war uh, in the Ukraine. It, like, like you said, it's a, it's a very, very bad thing that happened there. Um, but it's... It's just not reality that we can fight every injustice to its, you know, most extreme military end ever in the world. And this cluster bomb thing to me represents a significant moment because it, you know, it, it either says that that we just want to use cluster bombs, which which we used to say should be considered a war crime, or it says that we really have degraded our military readiness. 
in either case, a a quick work of diplomacy to end this conflict should be all that anybody is talking about. And it seems like it's the one thing that I don't hear coming from, you know, from the administration and from a lot of leaders, unfortunately. It is true. And then, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time for, for, for this, but you have Senator Lindsey Graham, right? You have Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina basically saying, hey, let's let's get Ukraine and NATO, which was very, very clearly one of the red lines for Russia. Said if any attempt to get them in NATO is is really an act, you know, is an act of war on your behalf, because what happens, guys, is if Ukraine is part of NATO, then when they're at war, every other NATO country is going to fight on their behalf. And so if we move that way, I don't even know why people mention something like someone like Lindsey Graham should know better. He's been in the game too long to say something like that. We can't get all the way into that. I just thought it was just reckless, man. I mean, just with the war hawk mentality is, is sick. And I, and I think it, it's really sad. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Church Politics Podcast uh, with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Well, as you know, Chris, there is a primary going on, at least in the Republican Party. And one of the, I was going to say one of the primary challenges, but I guess he's just in the primary too. President Trump is really in complete control of of this primary from, from what I can tell. His primary competition up to this point has been Ron DeSantis. But from what I can tell, the DeSantis campaign has somewhat been floundering. The New York Times wrote earlier that Trump in a Fox News poll is up 30 points. And the New York Times detailed how DeSantis campaign is really struggling to find its footing. And I would have to agree. This doesn't look like it's going to be much of a competition. And and I'll say this too, Chris, I don't know how much of this is the fault of the DeSantis campaign. Some of it is, but I think the indictments and all that stuff where I wish it might have had a, a, a negative impact on Trump's popularity with the base. It looks like it just solidified the fact that he's got, you know, who he needs behind him to get through this primary. He's their guy. They like his vibe. More and more people are saying, at least when it comes to the base, people could care less about policy. And again, it's more about the vibe and he's he's the one that's leading it. So I think part of that, I don't know that DeSantis could overcome if, even if he had the perfect campaign. One thing I will say, and and I heard this from Eric Erickson, which I think he made a pretty good point, who seems to be kind of a supporter of DeSantis, was that I think he got too deep into the culture war stuff. People liked him for that, but he lost any positivity in his message. He had an LGBTQ ad that went, went against Trump that probably went too far that just wasn't helpful. First, certainly not helpful within that conversation. And I think People aren't seeing him as as somebody who's bringing something positive to the table. And I think that's one of the issues that he's dealing with. Any thoughts on the, what you've seen from the DeSantis campaign? I think they misinterpreted what people liked about him. I think that people liked about Ron DeSantis, his ability to deal with specifically with issues in schools around gender and sexuality and different types of content. I think people appreciated his ability to navigate COVID without destroying his state's economy. And interpreting those things as culture war, I think, is a mistake because I think that people probably appreciated more his ability to to focus in on these real practical issues 
and just do what needed to be done and not kind of be just pushed by what seemed like to be an unstoppable movement from the left. I think they went and, and reinterpreted that as people wanted this giant culture warrior. And so what it is, I, I, I will say that I, if if anybody got into the, the campaign, the primary, thinking that they were just going to like overtake the guy at the top on either side of the aisle, I think they were really just misguided. I, I think that most of these challengers understand that one of the things that is very certain about politics is uncertainty and volatility. And both of the folks at the top of their parties have a lot of liabilities and could be gone for any number of reasons in any number of ways. And should that happen, I think the folks who are in the primary are putting themselves in a place where should that happen, I'm going to be already out there with some infrastructure, people know my name and, and those types of things. And, you know, to, you know, to that, to that extent, the DeSantis campaign is staying out there, staying active, staying second. And I think that's all you can do if you're on DeSantis. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree to some extent. I think there's things he could have done better, but yeah. to think that he would be above Trump right now, especially with those indictments and how people reacted to him. That's not really within his, his control. So. So, yeah, uh, you, you try to stay up there and, and just keep coming for it. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, the idea that we may end up with Trump running again is is uh, it just says a lot. I mean, it, it yeah. says a lot about where we're at right now. It's unfortunate. And people, you know, you look at the numbers for Biden and people would say people don't want him back. Why? Why is this happening? Yeah. again? It, I mean, it, you could say for both of them being older, you're dealing with these. You're dealing with Ukraine. You're dealing with some tough situations. Are we afraid that he, you know, somebody might speak in a way that they shouldn't because they're just not on their game during a certain day? Like that stuff matters at this point. And we have two elderly men that are probably going to be the two, you know, our two choices in the general election. And uh, the presidential campaign that nobody wants and everybody's going to get. Nobody wants it. And if this doesn't tell us that our democracy is in a bad place, I don't I don't know what I don't know what else could to, could send us that message. Yeah. So we'll see, man. We'll see what's up. Anything else to end this episode? Well, I, I guess just to bring it back to a slightly more positive note, we do have it within our capacity to revive our democracy. And the end campaign is going to work on some stuff. So there is hope. I like that. We might dig into that a little bit. I mean, there is hope. The end campaign is really going to be focused in on 2024. We're going to be be trying to help people move through this in a more positive way. So stay tuned to what we'll have coming up because we really do care and we really do want the church at very least to approach this in a better way. Well, thank you again, Ann Camp. You know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part 
by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.